This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. From the National Gallery of Victoria, Simon Maidman is Senior Curator of Contemporary Art and joins us to talk about the exhibition David Hockney Current. Simon, welcome to Triple R. Oh, Richard, thanks for having me. It's My, great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you in, and it's great to have you in to talk about the David Hockney exhibition. Now, Hockney himself was in Melbourne last week, missed my chance to, to interview him, but the media previews are always on Thursday mornings when I'm here in the studio, Indeed. so a bit tricky. But for people who don't know David Hockney, a British artist, uh, came of age in the 60s, was became known for his paintings of, of California and swimming mm. pools and a significant queer artist yeah. uh, in the 60s. But this exhibition, instead of being a retrospective, focuses on the work that he's made in over, what, the last eight or nine years or so that he's made on iPads and using modern technology. Why focus on David Hockney's current body of work rather than do kind of a, an overview of his far from uh, insignificant career? Yeah, it gets to the, really the heart of it with that question. Um, we were very keen to present a show of David Hockney's. We've been asked constantly by um, patrons and supporters and sponsors and um, general public. Uh, so, but, you know, as you know, with our programming, we try to do things that surprise and are a little bit different. Um, this is a show we've conceived and worked with directly with the studio, with David's studio and with David. And um, it's not going anywhere else. This is sort of a unique offering, if you like. And we did want to do something that's a little bit different. Uh, he's been... David's been doing some pretty big shows uh, lately um, that do look back across, you know, many of the bodies of work that you mentioned, Richard, um, some incredible um, bodies of work. Ones that I felt we were pretty familiar with. I was very familiar with it. I, I actually hadn't seen David's more recent work in the flesh until um, visiting a show with our deputy director in, uh, in San Francisco and being totally bowled over and by this new work. And um, seeing it in the flesh is a really different experience to seeing reproductions of it, as you, as you know now, having seen the show. And so I felt like I knew the new work, but going into that museum and seeing it in the flesh just absolutely knocked my socks off. And so we went to David. He was, I think, reticent to do too many exhibitions. He finds it a bit of a distraction from making artwork. Um, he's 79 years old and he's really focused on, in this latter part of his life, being as productive as he can. And so we went there with something we thought would be unexpected to him and unexpected to um, people who were asking for a show, which is, as you say, to focus on roughly nine to ten years of practice. The oldest work in the show is from 2007. It's also the largest work he's produced, 50 canvases that make one painting. Um, and it is a mixture of those kind of traditional forms like painting, oil painting, acrylic painting on canvas um, with new technologies, video and photoshopping and, um, and very prominently the iPad and iPhone drawings in the exhibition. Now, one of the things that struck me about the exhibition when I walked into it is partially is the vibrancy of it. The colour is so bright and alive and maybe perhaps because I was thinking Hockney is now a senior artist, perhaps his work will have become more sombre with mm -hmm. time. Instead, it's, it, it, it's the opposite. It's even perhaps more alive and less static than some of his earlier work. 100%. And very in um, some drawings, they feel very loose. You know, like these things are at times up to, you know, some of the prints are 
3.6 metres high. You know, they're enormous things that overshadow you. Um, and they've been done on something, you know, like an, on an iPad, something the size of a sketchbook. Um, very carefully, I think, with the sense that you, when you stand in front of them, you feel like you're standing in front of a painting and, you know, big brush strokes and exuberance. Um, you get that sense and, you know, that's from him having spent the last 60 years working in more traditional forms. And so he knows what unconsciously you read when you stand in front of these things and he's able to kind of insert those flourishes in very small ways on the touchscreen but that end up very large. Um, there is an, an absolute exuberance and looseness to it. He's an artist who's gotten to this stage of his career and isn't afraid to take major risks, um, put them out there in public, be judged on them. Uh, you know, there's a freedom to that that you sense that you don't necessarily get, I agree, um, with some of the earlier works, which feel a bit belaboured in comparison. Yeah. One of the things that's also a delight about the work is just, as you say, some of the sheer scale of it. Mm. Uh, the first room that you walk into is is iPad art, and there's essentially iPads and phones and, and screens of uh, and images that size on the wall, and then you walk through into the next room, and I actually teared up, I, I have to confess, the, the sheer scale scale and beauty of the, the, the room that you then move into. Mm. Um, and it's not like the work is overpowering. It, it's, uh, it's celebratory. It's, uh, it kind of lifts you up, liter- almost literally. Your eyes certainly have to lift up as you step back and, and look at the work. But there's, again, there's a real sense of the vitality of and, and energy of the work mm. kind of draws your spirit up with it. Yeah, and um, it's... It's, I feel exactly the same way. I'm getting a lot of responses from people who've seen the show exactly along those lines, joyful, exuberant, um, uplifting. It's, um, you know, putting smiles on faces. And it does feel like exactly as you've described it, like it's vital. And here is somebody, maybe it takes somebody at that stage of their career who's seen so much at that stage of their life, you know, 79 years old, who you know, is really willing to celebrate that. He's not trying to um, overthink it. He's just really putting that um, that love of life, and I mean life, not just one's own life, but of all lives, of other people's, of nature, of all those things. It's It's funny to think about it, but, you know, the tree in the exhibition becomes a real symbol of life and, and, and affirmation. Um, and, of course, they're the biggest living things that we usually see in our lives and the sequoia tree depicts is the biggest living thing in the world it lives the longest three thousand years some of those trees that are in those pictures so there is something about it that is um that is incredibly joyous and possibly i think only able to be you know really put forward by somebody who is just looking back at their life and just with absolute sort of you know joy and um and wanting to celebrate that and there's also a uh, a, a four-part video work mm. which again speaking of looking back at hockney's life it's looking at the landscape of his childhood essentially and we see it in four different seasons and am i right in thinking that's the work that hockney has gifted to the ngv yeah you're correct that's absolutely the case and it's an incredible video work um and like a lot of the pieces in the exhibition they can be read um on their surface and just enjoyed but if you you know, go down into them or spend more time with them. They get ever more complex as you as you delve into them. And that work really does invite us to look 
very intensely and in um, and with great detail at the world around us in the way that I think Hockney does. And it's very simply, you know, a room that you go into and there's four walls with four banks of monitors, each one showing the same um, point, the same uh, point, uh, the same place um, at the same time, but in four different seasons. And so you get a sense of the landscape changing. But each bank of monitors is, um, there's nine in total, and they've been recorded with nine cameras simultaneously. So you're in a room uh, with 36 screens that have been recorded with 36 cameras. And there's this, this just, you know, an intensity of that video image that you don't get normally when you see video art that um, really does transform it into something else. I agree. It was fascinating to, to spend time in that room because video art, can be can be challenging mm. to to be become absorbed in. It's very easy because we're so familiar with screens in our lives now um, that you glance at a screen. And with video art, you often find yourself glancing. And rarely do people sit down for twenty minutes mm. to watch a video work unfold. For example, uh, they might spend a minute or so looking at it. If that, it's mercifully short as well, isn't it, Richard? It's only four minutes and twenty one seconds that piece. But you do end up spending like 20, 20 minutes in there because it is mesmeric. Um, and, you know, I think it was Philip Brophy that said enough with the boring video art, and there's plenty out there. But um, I think David's, you know, very... He's been dismissive of it for many years, but when the technology is sort of caught up to the way he wants to depict the world, he's using it in new and innovative ways. And I think that's really exciting. Now, it wouldn't be a major exhibition without a few public events and programs accompanying it. So uh, are there any key events that you wanted to reference? Well, in particular, it's not a, it's not a specific... Um, event but it's an ongoing series of our Friday nights which I think would appeal greatly to the um triple R audience and uh, you know lovers great lovers of music across many different genres and we have some great bands um and musicians playing on those Friday nights so if you come on a Friday night you buy a ticket for the concert which is on in our great hall um it's a way to see some of these bands with you know fantastic sound and not as many people as and you know other venues um but also you get access to the exhibitions on the ground floor so david hockney current and the victor and roll fashion artist show so that's a great opportunity for people to come spend an evening see the shows and see some bands we've got you know custard played the other night which might be dating me a little bit but um i thought that was really exciting uh models are playing no zoo triple r's own dave graney in march um and we finished that season with Amanda Palmer, who I know is a big favourite of the, some of the Triple R audience. So, so that's a really um, that's a really great uh, ongoing series that I think particularly your listeners would enjoy. I agree. I think uh, pop in, see a band, grab a drink, and then uh, see some fantastic it, and stimulating work. If I might, just for a moment, Richard, say how joyful it is for me to be on in a week where you're celebrating the 40th anniversary for Triple R. Also, like it's a it's a radio station dear to my heart. Radio student radio. And and independent radio in particular. You know, I, I studied journalism at RMIT initially probably because of my, um, you know, the influence of Triple R and, and those studio, uh, those um, uh, student radio uh, test broadcasts. Um, I went to school, you know, university with people like Kalia who does the um, the grapevine on Mondays, Mel Cranenberg, um, Mick James, former station managers, you know, an old um, classmate of mine. So it's just, you know, 
great to be here on a time when we can really celebrate something that's so meaningful to Melbourne and has really created, helped create its unique culture, I think. It, I, I often wonder what Melbourne would be like without Triple R because mm. the vitality of the independent arts, live music, literature, all those things I'm sure would still be strong without Triple R, but with Triple R, they seem mm. to have become integrated into Melbourne in a way that is quite unique to the city. No, absolutely. And at a time as well, I guess when you and I were growing up, um, there wasn't really any other avenues. There wasn't the internet, for instance. So, you know, I was involved in the techno scene and the rave scene. Kate Bathgate's triple R show um, transmission was incredibly important for, you know, everyone had their tape players out and recording those. And there's, you know, all those kinds of subcultures during those times were celebrated on this station and given voice and communities built, you know, um, you'd be, you know, listening to somebody and think, know that there was a whole raft of people just like you listening to that same person. Um, and Triple R has done it in the most incredible way. And I think, um, you know, it will go, radio is changing a lot. The what, um, how people engage uh, with those communities and subcultures I was talking about has changed with the internet, podcasting. But I think Triple R has positioned itself so incredibly well over the last 20 to 40 years to, you know, really innovate in that area. And it's just a real thrill to be on air on a time when, you know, um, we can look back and celebrate what a great um, contribution it's made. I encourage everyone to go and see pictures of um, Richard with um, love bites on his neck at the State Library if exhibition. If they put it into the exhibition, they may <laughs> not have. We'll see if, there's a, if, that, if that particular photo of young me has made it in. But uh, who knows, maybe in another 40 years' time, the NGV will be hosting an exhibition about Triple R and all the artwork and posters and uh, and bands and so on that have been inspired by the station as well. But David Hockney Current is the exhibition I've been discussing with Simon Maidman, Senior Curator of Contemporary Art at the NGV. The exhibition is on until the 13th of March. More information at www.ngv.vic.gov.au. It is a ticketed exhibition, but uh, if you're thinking of buying a ticket, then uh, maybe do what Simon said and uh, head along on a Friday night, get a ticket, see a live band uh, and enjoy David Hockney Curran. It really is one of the most joyful and exuberant and uh, glorious exhibitions I've seen in a while. So, yeah, I uh, really enjoyed seeing it. And Simon, thanks heaps for coming in. Oh, thanks, Richard. It's great. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Joining me now in the studio is an Australian living legend, Uncle Jack Charles. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Lovely <laughs> to have you here, mate. Triple R, you beauty. Great. So you're performing at the moment in your show Jack Charles versus the Crown, an Ilbidgery Theatre production, which um, kicked off at the Arts Centre about... 2010, I think, was the yes, first yes, season. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, hard after Bastardy, the documentary. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there was a race actually between Rachel Perkins and Rachel Mazza, especially after the uh, the edited version on the ABC of Bastardy came on, and uh, they wanted to. Do, they rang me both up, and they said, uh, I'd "Like to do uh, Bastardy, the stage show, Jack." <laughs> And I had to pick Rachel Mazza because she's Bob Mazza's daughter, the one who helped me kickstart the modern black theatre movement in uh, 71 Melbourne, 72 Sydney, as I say. Yeah. And that, I mean, that sense of history is part of what Jack Charles versus the Crown is about. It's about you and your history and your struggles, both personal, political Mm. and legal as well. Yes, 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 yes. And... 
it, it, it's still only a wet dream that I could ever imagine that I could have my unfulfilled, uh, my criminal record expunged, removed, um, shoved into an envelope and into a drawer for the required 99 years. But now, you know, that's what I used to say in the show in the early days. Rom had written this and uh, I said, no, no, now it needs to be expunged because, you know, that's, that's the way to go about it. If I can show to those that I'm communicating with, with a, I'm a member of Uncle Archie Roach's foundation now, his ambassador no less, so if I can go into prisons and say, you fellas, I've just asked the state to remove, expunge my criminal record and uh, I'd like to be able to say they've done it, you too can do it but you have to take yourself seriously first as a white person if you're white as a somalian if you're somalian as an aboriginal if you're aboriginal that's the only way forward to get your criminal record removed it may take 10 years but you have a fair decent go at it you know that if you've lived you know 10 years pretty in a straight life you know doing okay um, looking after yourself mainly, but, you know, uh, you, you can get, then ask the system to remove your criminal record. Which, because once people have served their time, they've been convicted of a crime, they've, they've yeah. served their time in jail, that is the punishment. Yeah, yeah. And yet the punishment lingers and poisons right. people's life for years to come because it means that, for example, as you yeah. talk about in the show... It's white man's law. Yeah, if you're trying to travel yeah. to the UK, for example, yeah. a yeah. criminal record may stop you entering the UK or the USA. Well, it did. Yeah. It did. And, uh, you know, there's so many letters of support by the arts community over here and across the world, I suppose, had written to the point that uh, the British High Commission did eventually allow me into the mother country uh, in 2009, I think it was. I was invited to Sheffield International Film Festival to do two Q&As and... Uh, and, I, and I, as I say in my show, I write it all in my show. It's beautiful, you know, the idea that I can go over to the mother country, to Sheffield International, to do two Q&As. And I only got up there because Missy Higgins had heard my plaintive cry, what price rehabilitation? What are they on? I wasn't going to plant the Aboriginal flag on their white cliffs of Dover. That's already done. So she rang up Peter Garrett. And Peter Garrett, who was the Arts Minister at that time, befuddled with that oil spill in the Timor Sea, wrote me in on my passport, it said, my first entry, in the, you know, it says, uh, leave to enter the UK beyond the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's the, the system, acknowledging, uh, you know, how genuine a person I am in this regard, you know, and, and especially in the arts, the arts people take get it and, uh, uh, you know, assisting me in every way possible. So. Now, when you started out as a, as a young actor back in the 70s, did you have any hopes for a career that would indeed span generations? Was that your aim then and there, or were you just living more uh, for, the, for the day, for the moment, back in the 70s? Uh, I wanted to be an actor. You know? I, d I did my seven years with the new theatre, did an apprenticeship there, you know. The second trade I start to master <laughs> as a glass bevel a day during the day and uh, acting by night. And um, I, that's what I wanted to do, be an actor, first and foremost. And uh, the new theatre gave me that opportunity. 
I had a lot of failures when I was doing auditions and things like this, to the point now that it's, I, I'm firmly convinced that I should never audition again. Auditions so, are pretty so sold, Mr Allen. I like to tell my agent, you know, just tell them that Mr Charles is too far up himself to audition <laughs> anymore. He fears rejection. He's only a little fella, two centimetres short of five foot, so he doesn't do auditions <laughs> and fair enough. Well, presumably you've reached a point in your career now when people are casting you because they know you and they know the presence you well, bring to I a film. Well, I believe the system has just, just done that. They've acknowledged the journey that I'm now not performing with any poo in my, in my system, enhancing my performances, and they're tripping over themselves to write me in little cameo spots. Wolf Creek, Rake, Clever Man. Um, I won't be a spoiler, but... Uh, too many complaints, uh, Wayne Blair says, about my early demise in the first episode in Clever Man. Uh, so they brought me back. Now, that's all I can say. The magic of television. The magic of telly. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So, Jack, when you're performing Jack Charles versus the Crown... Oh, I love it every time, yes. <laughs> it's great to be unleashed back in the art centre from where it all began, started. Began, yeah. Cause Big re- honour for that mob to allow me to come back. It's much awarded prize, you know, show. And, and uh, you know, it's got a bobby, a, you know, a, a, a green room, a drover's hat, and one of the best touring shows here in Australia. And, and, so, and to, to take it back for a week at the Arts Centre is high acknowledgement by the arts community down here in Victoria. In well, terms of the show's progression, how much uh, has it had to be reworked and rewritten since that very early performance when it began after after the success of Bastardy? I think Romrel hit it and Rachel, dramaturging it, uh, hit it right on, on the nose and so very little has changed. It's just the way I deliver it now. I've gotten more confident in that. In those days, that was the first time I performed a post-addiction a, a significant show on a significant stage in the arts community without any poo in the system. And everybody in the audience had acknowledged this, had realised that even though I seemed to be struggling, I felt I was struggling, and that I, even though I wrote a lot of the pieces in it and that, you know, nonetheless, it was very hard to get up there and perform without any poo in my system. But once I did the opening night, it becomes easier and easier. I just have to do it once, you know. And telling my story, I'm very comfortable in telling it on the stage as much as I'm comfortable allowing Emil Corton Wilson to follow me around for a large number of years recording my life struggling with addiction and homelessness and crime and jail time. How many years did they sh- did uh, Emil shoot Varsity for? All told, about seven years. Yeah. I, I'd spent two of them those years doing one-year jail sentences, but he stuffed that with me, bought me books and topped my account in prisons. And, um, and uh, I was lucky I survived that last lag and at the lot in, in order to, um, to finish off the documentary. 2004 I left, to, to 2006... I think, and uh, it took two years to finish off the doco in 2008. Lo and behold, we had a, a winning documentary, you know, you know, uh, outing myself in so many ways I had not intended. But when he did, you know, he, he had the respect to allow me to come in and watch the rough cuts 
took me a while to it took him a while to con me in to come and see the rough cuts. But I saw them. And I said, no, 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 I'm comfortable with all this going on through a big screen. White Australia just needs to see just one stolen person's journey, mine, even though I'm an own article, a problem child with addiction, and yet honoured and respected in some fashion that I was still performing in the arts, still seeing, still acting. Well, certainly very honoured and very much respected now. How important is it for you, given that you've reached this kind of uh, part in your career, Jack, for you to then be able to go back and speak to other young offenders, uh, young people who are struggling with, whether it be with crime, whether it be with addiction, and, and to show them that, uh, that with yourself as an example, that they can try to repair the damage that has been inflicted on them and they have in, in turn inflicted on themselves or other people? It's powerful. I, I mostly, you know, I get a lot of, I do a lot of work on uh, Facebook, uh, but also on the streets, total strangers come up and uh, they want a bit of a chop out and, you know, how I can go about helping them, you know, settle down post-prisons and that, you know. Uh, they, uh, going back into prisons with Uncle Archie Roach now, I'm his uh, special roving ambassador for the Uncle Archie Roach Foundation now. It's just, that's my new title, my new hat. Gets me in to... Um, prisons uh, a little bit more regularly, especially the the young ones at Tirana and uh, and uh, and uh, um, what up at uh, uh, Country Victoria and uh, uh, starts with an M. But anyway, these two youth detention centres, prisons. Uh, um, I've been uh, I've visited them now. Um, uh, we're starting on a regular journey. If this, you know, once this uh, rioting in Tirana settles down, then uh, Archie and I will be going back in a little bit more regularly. I've just been going in there watching how Archie, what he does, but uh, even when we did go there last time, last Tuesday, or the Tuesday before last, it started then, the kerfuffle, the rioting and that, and... Uh, I was just totally, you know, amazed at how well the staff handled the uh, uh, the rough cuts that were causing mayhem and that um, um, they were very, very uh, uh, so tolerant and so, uh, uh, so very careful about... Uh, I think it's very different than the way uh, uh, the young fellows were treated up in, um, up in uh, Dondale. You know, I was totally blown away because I, the lived experience, uh, you know, I, I know. And, uh, you know, I know what could develop from you know, a young one, you know, arcing up and being very physical. Yeah. But uh, the, the guys just used their body, the women used their body weight. And <laughs> that it, it, it could be, I could see a wonderful film out of this even, you know. <laughs> But look, their brains are fried. Their iced, their brains are iced up. Uh, you know, by using the ice, the total lack of authority, total lack of respect for themselves, the system, the unaware, and being unaware 
of, uh, of cause and effect and all that kind of stuff. That's why I see the need for RCNI to continue going back into the youth detention centres uh, and given a, a chance to be unleashed. You know, sometimes we need to go back regularly to, to, to get the point across, to get the message instilled into their minds because, you know, they don't like being in jail and that and uh, you know sometimes I've had to settle down people when I'm in jail you know I've been asked to uh, quell down somebody that's uh, you know running amok and something like or somebody that wants to uh, kill themselves well um, I was always called upon by the governor to have a talk with them settle them down and that and I've done that so I can see myself as you know, this is the ultimate of destinations for an elder in my unique positions with the lived experience. Yeah. But the driving factor is that I'm related to many of the young ones and the older ones in our prison systems. So I had that inherent obligation to go back. And what better thing could an old fart like me be, be doing, you know? It's an honourable thing. It's a culturally correct thing for me to be in this unique position, get back into the prisons. And the system has allowed me in under the radar. So my job is now to uh, front the highest court here in Melbourne in the legal precinct and begin the journey before I... I go over to Canada even and, um, you know, in March next year to two Jack Charles versus the Crown to Toronto um, to, to ask uh, where, how do I go about and how soon can I have my criminal record expunged here in the state of Victoria. Uncle Jack Charles is performing in Ilbidgery Theatre's production Jack Charles versus the Crown. It's on at Art Centre Melbourne in the... Uh, um, uh, it's the it's Fairfax, the studio. Fairfax studio, yes. Where it all started. Did, yeah. Uh, and uh, if you want to check it out, it's on from the... It's th- running through until the 19th of November in the Fairfax at Art Centre Melbourne. You can book at artcentremelbourne.com.au. Performances are 7.30 each night and you're doing a, a one o'clock show on Saturday, Saturday as yes, well. Yes, yes, so yes, yes. Uh, you can see the matinee or you can see the evening show. Uh, it's... A uniquely personal show in so many ways. The, the photographs of uh, of yourself as a child that are shown, yeah. for example. And I've and I've got more for Facebook. Somebody sent in colour photographs of me, dead centre in the, in the number four home, where I was a little bit uh, younger than the school class shot, and that and it's in colour too. So we're going to add that in for the Toronto tour, these coloured shots. These even images of me moving as a little kid. So these things, this is what theatre can do. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's magic the way we can add in, continually add in stuff onto, this, onto the show. It's a constantly evolving show. I've now seen it twice in its original season and again last night and have loved it each time. Jack Charles versus <laughs> The Crown at Art Centre Melbourne. As I said, running through until uh, uh, this weekend, you can book at artcentremelbourne.com.au. Uncle Jack, it's been such a pleasure having I've you on the show. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 
no shortage of things to do and see in Melbourne. One of the things you can see and do is Tremor, which is having its world premiere at Arts House in North Melbourne. It opened last night and is running through until the 20th of November. And it's an exploration of the movement associated with vibration and a build-up of pressure on the body and the relationship between body and planet and more. Joining us to tell us more is the project's lead artist, Ashley Dyer. Ashley, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So that's one way to explain Tremor. How do you describe it to friends or colleagues? Um, well, they good, say, yeah, what get, are you working on? Get beyond the um, sort of marketing speak or whatever. Uh, the easy answer for that often is we've built a big space that's eight by eight metres, a floor. And in that floor, we have about 270 metal poles attached to it that look like a grassland of metal straight, like a metre high, and some of them, there's sheets of brass, sheets, there's big saws, there's a couple of pieces of metal that are two, over two metres high, and then we charge sound through the floor, and like sub-audible sound, sound you can't hear, and we make those poles then move in patterns, and those patterns we choreograph, and those patterns also give off additional sound, which we compose the sound score for the show. So it's both, it's a big instrument that we've built slash kinetic sculpture um, that moves and dances and sings and that we make move in relationship to actual dancers. I love the, the, that notion that of embodying sound because sound waves are invisible. We can mm. hear them, but we can't see them. But a project like this, we'll, we will see objects move in response to the sound patterns, the sound waves that they're experiencing. You are, yeah, definitely. And, and for the audience, we'll see not just bodies, but objects respond to that. And I think for the start of the genesis of this project, um, which is similar to a couple of other shows I've made in the same style, um, it was about revealing that thing. The, how do we let an audience um, see the remarkable nature of vibration, whether it's destructive force or or it's more beautiful kind of captivating force? And that includes, like you said, sort of what it looks like to see vibration. How do you see vibration? How do you feel it sensorily, like through the body? And how do you hear it, obviously, as sound as well? So that's kind of, yeah, the, uh, the sort of genesis where that sort of stuff comes from. Um, uh, the The notion of seeing sound is something that... Uh, I've seen illustrated beautifully with, um, I don't know, sprinkling powder on on a speaker surface, for example, yeah, so yeah. you can see the sound almost dancing as uh, yeah. uh, as ob- shapes are, are formed and reformed and feeling it as well is something that is fascinating about music. Uh, years ago now, uh, I went to see the German industrial band Einstutz and Neubauten playing in at the old Greek theatre in Richmond, mm. a theatre no longer with us, and my internal organs were vibrating yeah, um, yeah. at the these enormous kind of bass frequencies and so on. And it, it struck me as just really fascinating the way that sound passes through the body. Yeah, part and uses the bo- the body to, to to make it propagate itself. If that makes sense, yeah, like I agree. Like visually, for instance, if I draw it to what you're sort of saying close to the show a little bit, um, we have the saws, and we, we when we find their resonant frequency, they actually move so fast that they look like they're in two spots at once. And we can find it. There's a couple of frequencies that you can hit where if you're looking at it, it looks like it's not moving. It looks like it's stationary, but literally in two places. And you feel like you can put your hand in between the two places that it looks like it's in simultaneously even though it's clearly not but um so yeah it's definitely about making that stuff visible visible but it's also the other thing about the subaudible stuff um like yeah we're definitely interested in um uh you know everyone has a resonant frequency too and there's a the way i've made the work it's been um a series of works that we've then brought together as a as a as like an aggregate or a 
you know, conglomerate of pieces together. And in the foyer, for instance, we have a platform that you can stand on and, and one of the guys tunes to your resonant frequency so you can feel your eyeballs shake and, um, <laughs> and your skull shake. Just to, not for too long because it's kind you of You don't want people annoying. shaking apart. No, but, yeah. no, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Well, you just, you, if, for instance, if you just sing a little note while that's happening, it's sort of you get a nice little tremolo going that's a bit uncontrollable. Um, and it's always funny watching that because you watch someone standing there and they're like, oh, nothing, 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 nothing. And then suddenly they go, whoa. And, but from the outside, you don't, it doesn't look like anything's changed. So, yeah. yeah. Now, the other part of Tremor, of course, is there are dancers. That's uh, true. Three dancers. So you've got uh, Christy Eyre, Nat Curzio and Joe White, who are then physically responding to the sound and the vibration as well. Yeah, well, it, yes and no. I think that the... the, the it's the relationship between the movement of the object and the movement of the bodies is um, is, is overlapping more than anything. But, and it's more imi- like impressionistic, so the audience can kind of see how they um, see the relationship and then imagine into what the connections might be. But the choreography in particular revolves around sort of uh, a series of sort of hypnotic patterns that um, draw an audience in over time and then are broken at different points to, to reveal new inf- new types of movement. So it, I think it, it, or the space, for instance, earthquakes at points and sort of just jolts the audience back into to looking at things. Um, yeah, I think that's... I don't think I quite talked to what you just said, but that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> now, why this interdisciplinary practice uh, as opposed to focusing just on sound art for example or just on movement why blur the boundaries between art forms oh it's not really an intention to do one or the other like for me when i normally talk about what i'm doing i say i'm a performance maker and then people go what does that mean because it's too broad and whatever um for me a lot of the the practices it's i don't really see a music-based performance or a dance-based performance or a or of theatre-based performances as as distinct entities in the same way. Um, it's just that when you start to discuss it um, with other people that you have to kind of make those delineations. Um, so for me, you know, um, uh, I'm working with mediums that are coherent, that are, exist across those forms. So, you know, sound versus movement, uh, you know, uh, sort of visual stimulus versus... And or you know embodied experiences of audiences and conceptually whatever the work is or the thing that I'm trying to reveal most that determines what medium is most um, attached to it and then the classification of that as dance or otherwise is you know is only for marketing copy or for other people to to kind of make sense of if that makes sense yeah so it's all one yeah it's it's just performance for me um, and and that and under that broad heading you might. Different different mediums definitely have different um, tendencies for how they. I mean, like dance versus theatre, versus uh, music based performance or whatever the other performance form might be, live art, whatever you call it. They definitely do different things and have a. I think um, that they can enact certain types of qualities in an audience that other mediums can't. Like, I think, uh, for instance, theatre has which has a sort of greater capacity. Or it's one of its main things to do anyway. Is about. Um, Imagination and kind of helping an audience sort of follow narrative arcs more so. Not always. Others do. Other forms do that. But so you just use the medium that is most appropriate for the concept, really, um, or the the experience you want to give off over to an audience. And what experience did you want to give the audience well, for yeah, uh, for yeah, tremor? Because question. kind of yeah, what was the the initial 
idea or thought that you wanted to present to an audience? Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. Like normally with works, I have a really concrete idea of that before the show starts and then we move forward. But this has been more of a bottom-up process over a long period of time. So, you know, initially... I, I like to ask myself with something like the work is about uh, this revealing the wonder or the destructive force of the vibration. And I often think, well, I'd like to reveal that as something that they can experience in different ways. So as a visual image that they might be able to imagine into or as something that enacts, is enacted on the body in a kind of more visceral way. Um, so, but I don't know if that's actually exactly what we've gotten to with the work, you know. I feel like what's, it's been weighted way more towards the visual um, and kind of quite a, a, a beautiful, a captivating kind of series of, of overflowing images more than anything than it has been about really um shaking people to their core as as i would have liked to in some ways um but that's mainly because i think the, the instrument actually that we've made is has been so um giving of of uh, interest for an audience that that's you just move with where the, the artwork wants to go after yeah, a while. Yeah, it's an organic process making yeah, work. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Dyer's Tremor is on at Arts House in North Melbourne. Uh, it kicked off last night and is running through until the 20th of November. Uh, Thursday and Friday at 7.30pm, Saturday at 2pm and 7.30pm, Sunday at 5pm. And tonight you can get uh, green ticks for, for Nicks, I do believe. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means. I don't know what it means either. It's actually. on my media release. I think it means if you walk to the I venue. I think, oh, if you walk or cycle. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Then you can, they you can get a free a discount ticket. because it's part of their climate change policy, is which is great. Yes. Which is great. That's right. Thank you for the, reminding me of that. Uh, if you want to book, you can uh, book at artshouse.com.au or you can call 93223713 uh, to book to see Ashley Dyer's Tremor. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.